So, without any further ado, this morning we are in our second study in our series, Death to Life. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and this morning, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 34. In last week's study, if you do not remember, and maybe some of you do, we looked at two main things. We had two main points. The first one being that our faith in Jesus is not in vain. And because our faith is in Jesus, <laughs> we know that it's not in vain because he's not in the grave. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 13 through 19, Paul writes, and this is kind of where we, we ended last week, he says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Verse 15, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And he says in verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, then we are of all men most pitiable. So what were the effects of there being no resurrection? Remember, if there's no resurrection, then Christ didn't rise from the dead. The gospel is shattered. It's without power. Your faith is in a lie. All who preach the gospel are liars, and you're still dead in your sins. And there's no hope for those who have already died believing in Jesus. They're lost. And he says we're most pitiable. Our life is pathetic. And wouldn't that be a terrible place for it to all drop off at if we just ended at verse 19? But good thing there is verse 20 and the following to really bring it home. And so last week, our faith we saw is not in vain. We saw that Jesus is not in the grave. And really, we only have one point connecting these two sections this morning. It's because he is risen. He is risen. Our faith is not in vain, and he is not in the grave because he is alive. Would you look at verse 20 now in our new verse this morning? It says, but now Christ is risen from the dead, and he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know, when I think of Jesus, and he says this emphatically, Paul, that Jesus is risen from the dead, it reminded me of Matthew 28, verses 5 through 6. In the New Living Translation, it says, Then the angel spoke to the women. Do not be afraid, he said. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Isn't that an amazing thing? Just as Jesus said it would be, it was. Jesus is risen from the dead. And so you know what that means? Your, the gospel is not shattered. You know what else that means? That your faith is not in a lie, but in the truth. All who preach the gospel preach the truth. You are no longer dead in your sins because Jesus is alive. And there is hope for those who have already died believing in Jesus. And last but not least, your life is not pathetic. You are not the most pitiable because Jesus is risen from the dead. See, all who died before Jesus, and maybe you've wondered about this, they went to a place called Abraham's bosom. And I know that sounds like a pretty odd place to go, but Abraham's bosom, 
is a place where people went that were righteous before Jesus. Those men and women that had faith in God. And it was separated. There was two caverns. You can read about that in Luke chapter 16. It's a very fascinating thing. Where there were those on one side of this this place where they were comforted. And on the other side, there was a place of torment and there was a huge cavern separating the two. It doesn't say that those that were comforted could see across to those that were tormented. It does say, however, that those that were evil and were tormented there could see across to those that were not being tormented. Now, this is not to be mistaken for or confused with the Catholics' idea of purgatory. The Bible does not support the idea uh, for those that were evil uh, died and went to hell. This idea of purgatory. You, you, you know, if you look back at church history, as unfortunate as it was in some uh, instances, where you could buy indulgences to set your evil <laughs> or your wicked relatives free from purgatory, there's no such thing. Those that died apart from Christ or apart from faith in God, they went to hell, which is a place of burning and torment. See, that which makes one evil is sin. And sin infects us. And sin separates us from the Lord. And so the thing that's ironic even today is that people want to be separated from God now, but not in eternity. I want to choose to live a life of sin which separates me from the Lord and I don't want anything to do with God, but yet in the back of my mind I'm thinking I'd like to spend eternity with God forever in heaven. And actually those two things are mutually exclusive because eternity with God in heaven and a sinful lifestyle separate you one from another. They separate those two things. And so if you have Jesus now and you pass away, you're going to be absent from this body but present with the Lord. And you have that hope and you have that assurance because your faith is not in vain. Because Jesus is not in the grave. Because He is risen. Now, here in verse 20, I want you to note this because this is a very fascinating thing. It says that Christ is the first fruits. And what's extremely cool about the fact that it says that Jesus is the first fruits is that Jesus actually rose on the exact day of the feast of first fruits. So Jesus, who was the Passover lamb that died for the sins of the world, the day after that, which would have been that day that Jesus arose, was the day that the feast of first fruits began. It was the day immediately following Passover. And you know what's really sweet about that is the timing of the Lord, the, the, the first fruits of the resurrection. In the Greek language, first fruits, those two words coupled together can literally mean first fruits. Fancy that. But it can also mean in uh, a secular tense as an entrance fee. It was used as uh, the, the words to describe gaining entrance or access somewhere. So when Jesus, when it says of Jesus that he's the first fruits, it was the picture of the offering or the very first grain that was sprouted, that, 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 that very first uh, uh, fruit that would come from your work. You would offer that to the Lord and it was really uh, a sign of the harvest that was to come after that. And when you think about that in a spiritual sense, that Jesus being the first fruits of the resurrection with a harvest to come after that, the harvest is you and me that have faith in Jesus. 
He preceded what's going to happen in our lives. He was the first one resurrected into the glorified body, and we are going to be coming soon afterwards. So isn't that a sweet thing to think about, how Jesus was risen, he rose from the dead on the day of first fruits. He is called the first fruits here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But not only is Jesus the first fruits, so to speak, he's also the entrance fee to heaven. For he is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. And so in either case of the usage of that word, the first fruits or the entrance fee, Jesus is it. In verse 21 now it says, For since by man came death, By man, referring to Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. In Romans chapter 5 verse 12 it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all men sinned. The original man. Who is the original man? No, it's not your husband, no matter what he says. No, the the original man is Adam. Adam, the first man that was created. He was endowed with intellectual faculties. He named all the animals. And he not only had the power of speech, but, uh, but of reasoning and thought connected to speech. He could attach words to ideas. You know, the Genesis account, the Genesis account is completely opposite and contradictory to the evolutionary theory which depicts this you know, infantile savage slowly you know, groping his way around from hoo, hoo, hoo and sounds to you know, articulating speech. You know, this is not what the Bible tells us. See, Adam had moral and spiritual faculties. He was created the perfect man. He had the power to resist or yield to moral evil. Sin was volitional. It was. And there's an abundance of evidence, even in the uh, scientific and medical community, that would suggest that where mankind is today is a degradation from where he was when Adam was created. That he was at a much higher stage. You look at even the capacity that, or, or, or really the functionality of our brains and the percentage of our brain power that we can actually tap into and use. Small slivers of percentages. Imagine having all cylinders firing. The third chapter of Genesis gives a full account of what happened with the original man. But just let me share a few verses with you in order to give you a picture of this degradation of man. In Genesis 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That's Genesis 1. By the time Genesis 6 rolls around, listen to this. Genesis 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Six chapters. Six chapters. So it's only in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 that man is seen in his perfect state. In all other passages... From Genesis 3 until this present day, man is imperfect and in his fallen state. Not in his original state, but in his fallen state. 
I mean, Adam and Eve, they're free moral agents. They can make their own decisions. Though they were sinless beings, it was possible for them to sin, just as it was possible for them to not sin. They chose to disobey God's commandments, to not eat of that tree. And that was the beginning of sin in mankind. That's how sin entered in. There may be a difference in degree of sin, but not in the fact of sin in all people. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it says in Romans 3.23. See, death reigned. Because of what it says in Genesis 2.17 in the Bible, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. In Ezekiel 18 verse 20 it says, the soul who sins shall surely die. So the whole race of men held captive to sin. You might not think that this is important or maybe you're like, tell me something new, but there are a lot of people that do not understand the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because they don't understand the significance of sin infecting the world. The entire nature of man mentally and morally and spiritually and physically is sadly affected by sin. But it says in Romans 5.15, but the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense, which is Adam's offense, many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So death began with Adam, but it ended with Jesus. Adam's fall cost mankind, but Jesus Christ's death and his resurrection gifted mankind. And look at verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 15. It says, for as in Adam all die. So all those that are human beings will eventually die. Even so in Christ it says, all shall be made alive. All shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and then afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. So, Jesus was the first to be resurrected into his glorified, suited for eternity body. The thing that we want to have. The thing that we can't wait to have. We were talking about this, I think, at house groups last week. And we were talking about angels and talking about what's it like to be in a glorified body. Because I remember when I was a kid, the first thing I was asking, does this mean I can fly? You know, does this mean I can walk through walls? How cool would that be? And you think, uh, you know, at a, on a child, uh, at a child's level. But still as an adult, yeah, hey, would I be able to fly? I mean, what, what's going on? What's it going to be like in heaven? You know, when, when we're there, we know we're not going to be married. So there's no, you know, picking up other people in, in, in heaven, you know, I mean, like, what are you supposed to be, be like, hey, nice harp, I don't know, you know, so it's like one of those things that you think about, because we don't know all of the details of what's happening in, in the scriptures, it doesn't tell us, but we know that we're going to be given a new glorified body, now, you might think, well, how is Jesus the first resurrected from the dead? I've read stories in the Bible of other people being resurrected from the dead. Wasn't there the widow's son? And, you know, what about Lazarus? Uh, Lazarus, he's famous. You know, in the Gospel of John, doesn't it talk about other people being resurrected from the dead? They came back to life. Yes, they did. Only to die later on. That's the thing that I think we miss sometimes when we're reading this passage. Lazarus did Get, if you will, maybe resuscitated from the dead. He was dead, and the Lord raised him up. But it was in his physical body. 
And he eventually would die later, later on. And if I were to die right now, and the Lord would raise me back up and say, you're not done yet. And maybe some of you prayed for me. And then I got mad at you because I was in heaven. And I said, why did you pray for me to come back? Or whatever it might be. I know that eventually I would die later on. That's just the way that life is. Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection, which was a preview of the things to come for you because you have faith in Jesus. Resurrected into your glorified body, free from pain and free from sin, free from the propensities for illnesses, etc. The glorified body that's suited for eternity. And that's because we have faith in Jesus. It was the first fruits. Remember, the feast of first fruits is when you brought the first fruits of whatever your crop was. And you would offer that to the Lord. And it was that which preceded the harvest. Those that would come after. And so we have that hope in Jesus. And I think it's particularly comforting for, for those that, that struggle with certain physical maladies and with disabilities. You know, often, and you know the Lord's doing a work in, in my own family's life and with my own daughter's life. And often, you know, I've, I have prayed and have wished, you know, at, at the moment. And I know God's faithful to do what He's going to do and He's got a plan for everyone's life. But often I have thought and wished that I could just see my daughter free from these things that, that are holding her in this physical body. But yet I believe that the Lord is going to continue to give her supernatural ability and strength. But we know, we know that this life is short and we know that we have the future and a hope in Jesus Christ. In verse 24, it says, then comes the end. Man, isn't that emphatic? Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father and he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. Listen to what Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 1 verse 10. It says, this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Now for me, I got particularly excited about this. I think that this is something amazing that we as Christians can look forward to. When Jesus puts an end to all the rule and all the authority and all the power on the earth and we have one ruler, our God. This is an amazing thing. Man is imperfect and he will rule imperfectly. You know, you can have guys that are trying to do a good job and guys that are trying to do a bad job and that are evil out there. You know, from, you know, democratic presidents to, you know, socialists to, you know, communists to dictators to people that are annihilating people. Like, we are looking forward to the day when it is God who rules perfectly. We're looking forward to that day. How amazing that will be. We go back to God's original form of government, which the nation of Israel had before wanting to be like the other nations and electing or choosing Saul to be the first king of Israel. They were a theocracy. They were ruled by God. And that's what we will be again one day. In verse 25 it says, For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now, 
Paul is referring here to, maybe you've heard this, the millennial reign of Christ or the thousand-year reign of Christ where the last of the Lord's enemies will be defeated. There are people that are going to live through the tribulation. There are people that are going to be born, you know, during that time and then after that time. But we know that as the Lord will come and reign here on the earth for a thousand years, that Jesus will destroy the last of the enemies of the Lord. He will destroy the last enemies. This is the time where Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire. And then it says the final enemy that will be utterly and completely destroyed is death. Death. Death is an enemy. I don't know if you've realized that or not. Yes, it's a fact of life, and that's even ironic to say, isn't it? But it's one of those things where death is actually our enemy, But more than that, did you know that death set itself up as an enemy of the Lord? The last enemy. God created life, and because of sin, death entered into this world. You can play that that game of absences. Well, the absence of light is actually dark. Darkness, right? Absence of heat is actually cold. The absence of life is death. And you see there's byproducts to things or removing the things that God has created will have this vacuum. God created life. And because of sin, death entered into this world. And you'll see countless numbers of people not only being murdered, but dying. According to reference.com, I looked this up and it was 56 million people roughly die each year worldwide. I mean, that is a lot. I think they were averaging 150,000 a day die. So death is a very real part of people's lives. But death is the last enemy. It's so hard when you lose somebody that you love. But it was never meant to be that way. If Adam and Eve would not have sinned, then they would have been here with us today. Adam, what was it like seeing a tiger for the first time? Well, let me tell you about that. I mean, it's like you're talking about a life lived in a world that is perfect. Because of sin, we're not going to see it until there's the new heavens and the new earth. And we have that hope. We have that hope. Death is the last enemy. In verse 27, he says, For he has put all things under his feet. All things under his feet. But when he says that all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Meaning that God the Father is not underneath God the Son. Now verse 28, when all things are made subject to him, the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Now, doctrinally, this is for your spiritual growth as a Christian to understand these things. The Son will never rule over the Father. Now, some will use this passage of Scripture to prove the point that Jesus is less than or really inferior to the Father. And this is not true. Jesus is not less than God. He is not a created being. He's not the half-brother of Satan. Okay? We need to understand that. Submission to the Father doesn't mean inferiority, but rather we see from the entire context of Scripture that it's the order of administration of the Trinity, or the Godhead, if you will. So eternally, God the Father will always be God the Father, and God the Son will always be God the Son. And that's never going to change. So the Father, the Son, and the the Holy Spirit. And so that's what Paul is talking about here in verses 27 and 28. 
In verse 29 now, it says, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? Now, this verse here in 29 can be misunderstood when taken out of context. But within the context of what we're studying today, it should be understood. Now, it is no secret to anybody that has studied history, and especially if we localize it to the city of Corinth. Paul references pagan cultures and their belief, their superstitious practices, in helping those that have already died be ready for the afterlife, the resurrection. It was to help them, the, the pagan cultures, they would baptize people that had, or baptize somebody in place of someone who had already died to prepare them or make them ready for what was coming after that life. Now, if they're pagans, now Paul's referencing this and saying this to this end. If there are pagans, people that do not have faith in Jesus, that do not know that he is risen from the dead, and they believe in the resurrection, how in the world are there Christians in your church that are denying it? See, people were being led astray by false teachings, teachings that said there was no resurrection. He's saying even the false religions believe in a life after death type of accountability. So how much more should Christians live their lives accountable to the one who will judge the living and the dead? Pay attention. Listen to what I'm about to say. Nowhere and no how is Paul saying that one should be or can be a stand-in for someone else's relationship to God. It's impossible. You cannot have faith in Jesus for someone else. And you cannot live a life for someone else. And you cannot be baptized for someone else. It doesn't hold fast to the integrity and intellectual understanding and even the doctrinal cover-to-cover truths found in God's word if if Paul were to be saying that you can be, and he does not say that anywhere in this text. So, if somebody wants to say you need to be baptized for somebody else, that is not of the Lord, and that's not what his word says. And there are some religions even today that still practice being baptized for the dead. You cannot be a stand-in for anybody's relationship with the Lord. That's between you and God. In verse 30 it says, And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Verse 31, I affirm by boasting, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily, if in the manner of men. I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. What advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, I don't know about you. You're obviously your own unique person. But I think it would be safe to say that there's probably a vast majority of people that are in this room or watching this right now that would like to have a nice comfortable life that you wouldn't be opposed to having nice things or not having to go through difficulties but there are times when the Lord may call us to do something dangerous I know Paul was called to do those very things we've read about them 
I mean, the way he lived his life, pedal to the metal, so to speak, spiritually, charging with the gospel, preaching in dangerous areas to people that were opposed to him, being persecuted, being stoned, being beaten, being chased after, being arrested, being in prison. You know, all of these things. He's saying, why don't I stand in jeopardy every hour? I die daily, persecuted constantly, risking my life for the gospel. He faced all manner of evil, even these men that he referred to as the beasts at Ephesus. So if there is no life after death, then why would Paul not be living like life is a party? It doesn't make sense. If he didn't believe that Jesus was risen from the dead and that there was the hope of a resurrection, why would he be living his life so dangerously? Why would he be counting his short amount of time on this earth as so invaluable and not capitalizing on it selfishly and trying to gain as much as he can and acquire and experience? No, it's because he knew that his faith was not in vain, because Jesus wasn't in the grave, because he was risen and that there is a resurrection, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and he knew that if they kill me, to die is to gain, because there is something after this life. Because if there wasn't, hey, might as well just eat and drink because tomorrow he's going to die. But instead, like you and me, we have a hope of eternity and a great desire to see those that are without Christ saved from their sins because there is a reason that mankind was created. There is a reason for every person that has ever breathed a breath of air on this planet to be alive and it's to know the God who created them and so whether we are enjoying God's blessings or we're charging into dangerous territories we have this hope that because Jesus is raised from the dead so too we will be raised with him man have you ever thought how awful it would be if this world was it I mean, if you're really honest with yourself, and yeah, the Lord blesses us. He's created beautiful things for us to experience. He provides for us. He gives us things that, that, that we don't deserve and things that, that are just so amazing. You know, we can go to the mountains or we can go to the lake or we can go to the ocean. You know, we can go to the Midwest and just see miles and miles of, you know, cornfields and just like, what in the world? Where, you know, we can experience all these things, architecture and music, and, and those things are fine. And we thank God for the blessings that we have. But in this world, we see the evil. We see the cruelty. We see the way people mistreat each other. In house groups on Thursday, we touched on a little bit about racism and the things that we're seeing in our own country and how terrible it is. And how God created all men equal. And what a beautiful array of skin colors He has created for us the family of God this isn't heaven some people might say this is it no this is not it this is not it the unfortunate truth though is for the non-christian this world is as close to heaven as they will ever get this with all its problems this way of life, hey, eat and drink and party and work and spend and acquire and experience, that's it. 
if you believe that there's no accountability after this life and that you just cease to exist, but the Bible tells us quite the opposite, that it's appointed for man once to live and then to die and then to stand before God in judgment. So we're not living our lives like, hey, this is all it is. No, we live in our lives here as sojourners. We're passing through. This world's not our home. And when I breathe my last breath here, I'm gonna begin my new life with Christ in heaven. So for the Christian, this world is as close to hell as you will ever be. And we say, thank you, God, hallelujah for that. This is as bad as it gets here on this earth because we have the hope of the resurrection. And so that's where our hope is. So again, our faith is not in vain. Why? Because he's not in the grave. And why is he not in the grave? Because he is risen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be here this morning in your house. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to continually grow in our knowledge and understanding of your word. Lord, I pray that these things were rightly divided this morning and that they are accomplishing exactly what you would like to have them accomplish in the lives of those who have heard. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to be men and women of faith, that you would help us, Lord, to be aware of the enemy's attacks. May there be no division in this church, Lord. We ask, Lord, that you would bind the enemy from trying to cause division or trying to uh, tear this place apart, Lord. We thank you that you have been our protector, our shield. We ask, Lord, that we would continue just to grow grace upon grace upon grace, Lord, that we grow in wisdom and understanding. And most importantly, we'd be rooted and grounded in your love. And so, Lord, we thank you that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead as the first fruits of those things yet to come, Lord, is going to be the same power that raises us following behind him. And, Lord, we thank you for that hope that we have, that hope that does not disappoint. And we ask that you would bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.